Do you feel that it is your fault? How can recovery help you understand what is really your responsibility and what absolutely is not? Welcome to episode 339 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Kristen, Lisa, Joanne, Sandy, Mary, Lawrence, and Julie. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Kristen, Lisa, Joanne, Sandy, Mary, Lawrence, and Julie for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me today is Eric. Welcome, Eric, in this early Sunday morning. Early. Yes, indeed. It is, uh, I don't know, just tipped 7 a.m., and I've been here doing prep since 6 a.m., so. Uh, Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. The thing that I think prompted you, Eric, to suggest this topic is a scene from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Do you want to set it up? <clears throat> yeah. So many of us have seen that movie. It's a classic, in my opinion, Robin Williams and Matt Damon. As those who've seen it know, uh, he was severely abused by a parent, I think probably his father growing up, but he was also a genius, mathematical genius. And the scene where Robin Williams is his therapist, where he approaches him slowly, it's towards the end of the movie, and he just moves a little closer, very slowly, and keeps repeating the phrase, it's not your fault. And then he takes another step and says, it's not your fault, and so on, until the boy has a breakthrough. Let's play that. I had to to stop the movie and cry. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You see this? Holy shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. No, no, you don't. It's not your fault. Hmm? I know. It's not your fault. All right, don't fuck with me, Sean. Not you. It's not your fault. Obviously, it moved me that much, and I've heard it move many other people that much. I thought, man, this this might be worth a deeper dive. So, hence the inspiration. And I will say the response from listeners has been amazing. We have 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We have 11 shares on this topic, some short and some not so short. There was a reading you sent me from In All Our Affairs. This reading is from page 85 in the book. The section is headed, No Longer Blaming Myself. When violence first occurred in my marriage, I truly thought it was my fault and that I should never say or do anything to anger my alcoholic husband. If I did, I thought he was justified because in my mind he was always right. Therefore, I must be wrong. Because I didn't want to think badly of him, I just denied that any violence occurred. However, it was violence that brought me to Al-Anon, where I learned I was dealing with a very sick person and that I too was ill. I often needed to be reminded that I didn't cause the disease of alcoholism. I can't control it and I can't cure it. I no longer have to blame myself for another person's actions. By focusing on myself and working my program without all that blame, I can recover from the effects of this disease. Al-Anon has literally saved my life. Wow. Yeah. I didn't have violence in my relationship with my alcoholic, but I certainly felt that the problems in our house, in our family were at the very least my fault because I couldn't fix them. And in some cases I would say the wrong thing and things would just go downhill from there or I would do the wrong thing and it would be not pleasant. As I mentioned, I was in early this morning, so I had an hour, which you know what that means. Uh Uh-oh. Leave me alone. And I do the research. Episode 81, Recovery Show, The Three C's. All right. A couple of words that came up as I was thinking about this topic, I think as you were thinking about this topic, are fault and blame. We feel like we're at fault. We feel like it is our fault and we feel blamed or we are blamed and thus we feel like it's our fault. The word blame, almost circular here, assign responsibility for a fault or wrong. Wikipedia says blame is the act of censuring, holding responsible, making negative statements about an individual or group that their action or actions are socially or morally irresponsible. The opposite of praise, okay? Didn't get much praise in the alcoholic relationship. And then fault, definition, responsibility for an accident or misfortune, a misguided or dangerous action or habit, and as a verb, criticized for inadequacy or mistakes. Oh, man, felt that. And then at fault, being responsible for an undesirable situation or event in the wrong. Does that resonate? Oh, yeah. For me, I didn't look up definitions for this one today. I I just have my own definition of as that those words apply to our program and to me. For me, in our context, it's all about when I am blamed. When the finger is pointed at me, what it does for an alcoholic, it takes the focus off of them. We've all heard when you point a finger, three point back. And depending whether I'm blaming someone or they're blaming me, whether you're the blamer or the blamee, okay? Yes, yes. The point is it takes a focus off of whoever is extending the blame or pointing the finger. That's a very effective mechanism for an yeah. alcoholic. A, yeah. An early friend of mine in the program referred to that finger pointing with three fingers pointing back 
she called it the Al-Anon salute. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's going in my notes. The Al-Anon salute. That's good. I, I want to start with this longish share from Carrie, who sent it in this morning. Hi, Spencer and everybody. I'm calling in reference to the upcoming episode, It's Not Your Fault, from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, that scene really got me. And I do think it's maybe worth mentioning that there may be some professional therapists out there who might cringe on some of the unethical lines being crossed in the scene and maybe the whole movie, the relationship. But even so, I I found it really touching how they both experience trauma and they're still, you know, standing. They're both really tough. They grew up in a really tough city and they're both really cautious about being vulnerable. Uh, and I get all that. I'm from DC and while I didn't experience physical abuse, thank God, I've come to realize that I experienced verbal abuse and emotional abuse growing up in a home where my dad left when I was a baby, largely in part, if not entirely, because he grew up in a home where his dad drank to the point of being physically violent and his parents divorced when that was just completely unheard of. And my mom was, I believe, an untreated Al-Anon and a rageaholic. Um, so when I saw that movie, when it came out in 1997, I cried watching it because it felt personal. There was also, I realized, like a sense of relief seeing part of myself, my experience on screen, which I think is, I don't know, a really cool part or element. And while I've heard that children feel responsible for their parents' divorce, I don't feel like I ever felt that. But I did feel like if I'd been a cuter baby or a better baby somehow, I remember seeing photos of myself and I was cute. Like I had white blonde hair and big brown eyes and all babies are cute. So even though I knew that thought wasn't reasonable, I knew that I still felt it. Like I could have, or I should have done something more or better. So that is responsible. But yeah, then growing up, I felt very criticized by my mom a lot, all the time. I've often described it. That if I were a fish, that was the water I was in, criticism. While I surprisingly had some awareness at a really young age that it was her stuff, it still is really hard not to take that in. So it was my mom and also at the school where I went, it wasn't supportive. And I knew that something was up with my learning capabilities. I mean, I asked my mom in the school to get me tested for a learning disability. My best friend had a learning disability. I was like, those things are similar. Uh, but my mom told me that she didn't want to because I would use it as an excuse, which I realized later, like a few decades later, that that was actually really unsupportive and insulting because I'd never done anything to give her the impression that I would use anything as an excuse. And my teachers told me that I needed to try harder, do better, and learn the material better. And then finally, when I was 16, the school had a college counselor come in. I, I never met her to thank her, but she saw my SATs and said, you know, this kid has a learning disability. So finally, I got tested and I did have a learning disability. So the messages I got from my world, which was my mom and my school, was that it was all on me and I needed to do more do better and be better. 
but I didn't know how. So I just kept trying. And I now see that as an adult, that explains, I think it makes sense to me, like why I can be so hypervigilant. But when I got to college, I was on the honor roll, which I also found really, really confusing because I literally had thought, I had the thought like, wait, but I'm not smart. How am I on the honor roll? Because I was giving just as much effort. So which was it? And I remember thinking, is it me or is it them? And then in my late 20s, I started to notice how self-critical I was. And that was my mother's voice. And I was aware that I didn't agree with it, with the things that I was mad at myself for. I I remember I went to a, a shadow workshop this was before I found Eleanor. And at that time, I remember doing a process and it felt like a hook. Like she, my mom had a hook in me, which sounds weird, but it's just, we weren't two separate family members living together. Like I was somehow causing, always causing her strife, but I didn't know what I was doing to do that. I just realized that my inner voice was my mom. I remember thinking like I wanted to detach from that and extricate that from myself, but I didn't know how. But I was at that time able to observe my thoughts. Then five and a half years ago, I found Al-Anon and it's just been absolutely incredible. I've learned that I'm not alone. It's not just me, that the effects of alcoholism, you know, that it, the effects that it has on family, um, realizing that while my parents didn't drink, they were hippies and they did other things hippies do like smoke pot. And I don't know what else, probably other things too. And, but that's what I saw. Um, growing up and that their parents drank as did my great grandparents with that I learned that I did not cause it because it was way before I ever got here I can't control it and I can't cure it Al-Anon has helped me to see clearly that I used to do a lot of caretaking and enabling and helping when I wasn't asked which sometimes would accidentally cause chaos and I used to take responsibility and blame when it wasn't mine in Alan now, I have traditions and slogans and tools and resources and literature and you know, the support of my Alan on friend, a very safe, unbiased sounding board for me to check myself. I'm still looking for a sponsor, but I have hope that one day I can add that to the list too. So when I think about the topic, it's not your fault. I, I wanted to share three things. First, that detachment bookmark that is at some meetings. It's online as well. I'll just read part of it. Detachment is neither kind nor unkind. It does not imply judgment or condemnation of the person or situation from which we are detaching, separating ourselves from the adverse effects of another person's alcoholism can be a means of detaching. This does not necessarily require physical separation. Detachment can help us look at our situation realistically and objectively. Alcoholism is a family disease. Living with the effects of someone else's drinking is too devastating for most people to bear without help. In Al-Anon, we learn nothing we say or do can cause or stop someone else's drinking. We are not responsible for another person's disease or recovery from it. Detachment allows us to let go of our obsession with another's behavior and begin to lead happier and more manageable lives with dignity and rights, 
lives guided by a power greater than ourselves. That just makes me want to tear up. That just really speaks to me on so many levels. So I just feel like that's me. <laughs> the way that my life was before Al-Anon and then with Al-Anon, I, I am learning those things. And I have learned those things, and my life has changed so much. We will hear more of Carrie's share later in this episode. A lot of the things she said in there connected with me. What connects with you? That was a long share, but it was really good. Thank yeah. you so much for that. Wow, lots and lots in there. I don't know where to begin. I think we maybe just move on and let that speak yeah. for itself. So I had another reading. This is how Alan works, page 6, chapter 1, just two paragraphs. Even if we have no idea whether or not anyone around us had a drinking problem, we can see the effects of alcoholism in our own lives if we know what to look for. We who have been affected by someone else's drinking find ourselves inexplicably haunted by insecurity, fear, guilt, obsession with others, or an overwhelming need to control every person and situation we encounter. And although our loved ones appear to be the ones with the problems, we secretly blame ourselves, feeling that somehow we are the cause of the trouble, or that we should have been able to overcome it with love, prayer, hard work, intelligence, or perseverance. We know that something is very wrong, yeah, but we can't figure out what it is, or we think we have identified the problem but can never seem to solve it. We may suspect that drinking has something to do with our situation, but we don't really want to think about it. After all, alcoholism can be embarrassing. Or we may be acutely aware of the drinking and its destructive consequences and feel responsible for doing something about it. Yep. I definitely felt responsible for doing something about it. We secretly blame ourselves. There it is. That is, I think, the key fundamental aspect of my life before Al-Anon. I think at some level I recognized that I was... Feeling at fault, I was blaming myself for what was going on. Why else would I have spent so much energy trying to fix it? But the full recognition of that, I think, didn't come until much later after I'd been working the program for a while. I will say, though, that day that I've talked about, that moment when a counselor at a treatment center said, you didn't cause it just struck me to the core that I think that all by itself might've been enough to get me into the program, to get me into recovery. But of course they went on and said, you can't cure it and you can't control it. Let's just put the nail in it, put the lid on it, whatever that expression is. How about you? My alcoholic used to flat out say to me, you are, are my trigger. You are the reason I drink. You caused me to drink. So what did I know? This was before program. I sprouted wings and a halo. I said, okay, I'll just walk on water and do nothing wrong and then try to avoid any possible thing that could upset her. It was ridiculous. It was the weather that would cause her to drink. It was good news, bad news, any news, no news. It, it was nothing to do with me. Someone once said to me, Eric, the only way... You can cause her to drink is if you strapped her down to a table with duct tape, pried open her mouth, and poured it in. Otherwise, you have nothing to do with it. She's going to find anything, any reason to drink. 
There are three tags in this one. Guilt is spoken about in in perspective, which we did episode 528. Responsibility is spoken about at length in episodes 120 and 102. Again, blame and guilt are spoken about in one that you and I did recently. Patience and Tolerance, episode 333. Yeah. Hey, you want to read the email from Deb? Spencer, self-esteem is a topic that is top of my mind for me always as I engage in recovery. I felt like an imposter or fraud for much of my adult life. Just wait until they find out I'm not as good as they think I am. Is a voice I've heard in my head for decades. It applies to my career, to my parenting, to my abilities as a friend, all aspects of my life. Someday the facade is going to come crashing down and everyone will know that I'm not who they think I am. No matter how accomplished I am in any area of my life, at any moment, the truth will come out. I've only been a member of Al-Anon for a year. But I'm already seeing a few cracks in my hypothesis of fraud. That's a great phrase, my hypothesis of fraud. The more I attend meetings, the more literature I read, the more I work the steps. Three truths are emerging. One, I'm a human being, no better or no worse than any other of my fellow humans. Two, I like to punish myself. If my parents didn't love me or take care of me, then how can I be vulnerable and contribute to the world? Three, there is very little real evidence that I am an imposter or fraud. I will take time for me to mitigate many years of self-doubt and life experience that has led me to believe I am a fraud, but I do have hope. And for the first time ever, I'm starting to believe that I do bring value to the world, my kids, my husband, my friends, etc. I will keep working this program one day at a time. Deb. And she brings in another concept here, which is so intimately connected, this feeling of being a fraud or an imposter, of not being good enough. That, for me, definitely is something that can come from this feeling that I'm at fault. Because if I'm at fault, obviously, I'm a bad person. They're going to find me out. Here's the evidence that I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm not a good provider. I'm not a good fixer. And I must be to blame. And I must be to blame, yes. Yeah, therein lies the rub. Two more tags in this one. Hope. We did an episode recently on hope. Concept five. I don't remember the concept that led to it. I don't have that episode. You're going to have to overlook that. Yeah, and an earlier episode on hope also. I think it might be 65, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I'm actually looking as we speak. And the other one that uh, one of my favorite episodes you and I ever did I mentioned it to someone last night and showed them the picture. Do you believe? Episode 270. And hope was episode 328. Hope okay. means possibility. 328. All right. And do you believe? 270. Jeez. All right. I'm full of it today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I had some time. So Roberta sent an email also talking about self-esteem, which, like we said, feeling blamed, feeling at fault. Definitely a recipe for low self-esteem. She writes, self-esteem. Oh boy, currently mine is very low. I blame myself for someone else's situation that will directly affect the family. Even though in my soul, I know it's not true, but I must have done something wrong, maybe in a past life 
to bring this about again. I'm so afraid of being wrong with my career, and God forbid someone finds out that I am human and didn't do it perfectly. I know God, my higher power, doesn't make junk, but not feeling the love from him right now. Could be I'm blinded by anger, and I choose not to. I blame myself for someone else's situation, even though in my soul I know it's not true. Yeah, good one. This is what it's all about. I'm not surprised we got this deluge of incoming. I got one this morning. I asked um, a close friend in the program for his thoughts about it and didn't have anything as I was coming to the office at 6 a.m. And then about 6.30, I got a text. It's from Bruce G. He's shared before with us. He starts by, hey, Eric, dot, 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 dot. I'm just getting conscious this morning. was out much later than I expected last evening. So I'm thinking about your topic and fault and blame, and it brings me back to thinking about powerlessness. My first sponsor used to remind me that just like the sun rising and setting, I have no control over many things except how I react to what is presented to me. I think the same thing is true for me with fault and blame. Blame is defensive. Fault is reactionary. It was easy to blame my crappy life on my ex. But the truth was, and is, I didn't know what I didn't know before Al-Anon, and now I do. To hold on to blame and think about whose fault it was or is doesn't serve me today. It only keeps me stuck in the past. To move forward, I have to move those two things out of my head, let them go into my heart, and then do a step eight and nine with myself and let myself off the hook. Smiley face. And and steps eight and nine, if you're new to the program, step eight is um, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became entirely ready to make amends to them all. And step nine is made direct amends to such people where, except where to do so, would injure them or others. And sometimes, as Bruce says, one of the people we've harmed, and I've heard some people say, I think the person that I most harmed is myself. And our program encourages us to make amends to ourselves for things like blaming ourselves, feeling that we're at fault. Or as Bruce points out, blame goes both ways. And it's really, I don't know, paradoxical because, yeah, I felt like it was my fault that we were in the situations we were in. But at the same time, it was very clearly her fault. For lack of other choices, why not take the blame? I'm going to carry not only my luggage, but everybody else's. I didn't know I had a choice. I didn't know how to use a boundary. I didn't know how to detach. I didn't know. And as Bruce eloquently pointed out, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's okay. And now I do. All right. We got a voicemail here from Carol. I was listening to episode number 336, and Eric was describing the movie scene of It's Not Your Fault, It's Not Your Fault. I was cooking, and I had to turn off the stove and sit down because I just burst into tears, and I paused the podcast and cried and cried. And I would say that is the heart of my disease. That is, in a nutshell, that is my disease. That statement, it's not your fault. When I first found Al-Anon three years ago, 
I was in excruciating emotional pain and desperate and actually at risk. My first or second meeting, I picked up a blueprint for progress. Some of the members were like, no, it's too soon. And I just didn't listen. I just took that home and did a partial fourth step. It was the only thing that helped me because I realized it was like a tourniquet for me. The bleeding stopped. I finally had some relief from pain. And I just kept saying to myself, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You are at fault, but it's not all your fault. You are at fault, but you're not all at fault. Despite what my qualifier was saying and doing to show me otherwise. So grateful for this podcast and your service and your realness and just never know when it's going to really hit something. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol, for that. That was so real. I don't know what else to say. Yep. This is a breathtaking episode of that scene. I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen it. Every single time I tear up. Probably the third time I watched the movie was only like a month ago. And then it really struck me. Much more so than the first two or three times I watched the movie. And it's probably because now I have feelings. I allow myself to feel because of this program. I'm okay being struck and affected by that. And then I can let it go. So that's why we're here today. I love her notion that it was like a tourniquet. That's a great visual. And her, it's a mantra. I just kept saying to myself, it's not your fault. It's not all your fault. You're not all at fault. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol, for that. Karen left a voicemail. And then she sent an email. And you want to read the email part there, Eric? It's kind of funny. Okay. I, I just left you an incoherent voicemail. What I was trying to articulate is that before I came to Al-Anon, I thought all of it, my loved one's behavior, was my fault. And therefore, it was my duty to act as my mother's fire department and my husband's buffer to from the world, a.k.a. like a crazy woman, rescuing people who were content doing what they were doing. When I realized after years of listening to others share their experience, strength, and hope is that I was not a victim, but I was a volunteer. My behavior is my responsibility. It's not my fault that I was born into the disease. However, it's my responsibility to deal with the effects in a healthy way. Yes. Yeah, so let's let's listen to Karen. I, I don't think it was all that incoherent. Hi, good evening, Spencer. It's Karen. I was calling because I was just listening to your latest episode, and I wanted to chime in on the topic of self-blame and self criticism for the it's not your fault show I always thought it was my fault I thought I was responsible for so much for how other people felt for how other people received the actions that my qualifiers would take how other people would react to my mother and this and that my husband and it was all me and if I tried to control the world, then 
it would be received better for them, and then they would be happier. But in Al-Anon, I learned that was just stinking, thinking. And I am in control and responsible for myself, but I had no idea. I thought I was to blame for everything that went wrong in everyone else's life. And they were not at fault. It was me. But then I came to realize that I am not to blame for everyone else. And I actually need to take care of myself because I am to blame for my behavior and for how I treat myself. I learned in this program early on that I'm not a victim. Only children are victims of this disease. I was a volunteer, and I needed to stop volunteering (laughs) for that rewarding position of responding, reacting, just reacting negatively towards the alcoholic. But I think that I'm not to blame now, and I can only recognize it because I've seen others in meetings share their experience, strength, and hope, and I've been able to recognize that they, my qualifiers, are adults, and they can take care of themselves, and I need to allow them the consequences of their actions. And for some of them, it takes the court of law, the judge, to hold them accountable. That's not my role anymore. I can't do that. I'm putting down the two-ton mirror that I've been chasing them around with for the past two decades, and I'm just focused on me and what I can control. And it's such a relief to recognize it's not my fault. It's not my fault. At that point, the voicemail cut her off, but, oh, man, there was something in here. Oh, yes, other people's behavior, feeling responsible for other people's behavior. Feeling responsible for my alcoholic's alcoholic behavior. A couple people in their shares have talked about also some tools. And detachment, I think, that Carrie and a couple of other people so far have mentioned. Detachment was really important for starting to not feel at fault, not feel blamed not feel that everybody around me was blaming me for her behavior. When I was able to detach myself to start to see where my hula hoop was and wasn't, it became easier to maybe not feel as embarrassed when there was some alcoholic behavior happening. What tools did you pick up early on this, Eric? Yeah. The first tools I picked up were the slogans. Let go and let God was the first, and I used it as a speed bump, which I've shared many times. I didn't know what it meant. It was just something to say and take my mind off it. Let go and let God, let go and let God, let go and let God. I, I recently just changed that to let go and let go. You let go and let's let go. Just let go. Let go. I do the meditation on inside timer. There's one there that is just so incredibly powerful. Everyone I've shared it with, again, tears up when they, it's just about everybody. And it's simply called She Let Go. And it's really beautiful in the way it's, there's music behind it. And it's about just, she didn't make a plan. She didn't tell anybody. 
She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind cleanse. She just let go. And so letting go is the first thing that I think is very helpful here. To not accept blame is to just let go. I don't need to fight back. I don't want to defend it. That slogan, Jade, don't justify, argue, defend, explain. Because I make it real when I do that. I can simply let go by detaching, setting boundaries, and I would say one of the most important is to filter it through the serenity prayer. Accept what I can't change, have the courage to change what I can, and eventually the wisdom to know the difference. All right. Oh, okay. Kate writes an email. Hi, Spencer and Eric. I'm writing about the topic. It's not your fault. The first thing that came to mind when I read your email was a discussion I had with a friend shortly after my husband told me he was leaving me because I was causing him to drink. She said to me, if only curing alcoholism was as simple as getting a divorce. When she said that to me, it felt like the clouds in my thinking parted just long enough for me to realize, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Something I've learned about myself in Al-Anon is I'm quick to say something was my fault because it gives me a sense of control over the situation. If it's my fault, then I just do something different the next time, everything will be fine. My sponsor, my higher power, and Al-Anon readings have helped me to see this is sick thinking. To me, a healthier way to think about a situation is to ask myself, what's my responsibility? This helps in my relationships with my kids, husband, family, and coworkers. Thanks so much for your podcast, Best Kate. That was something that came up for me when I was thinking about this topic, like what changed for me as I started working this program, as I started understanding the principles, the slogans, working the steps, hearing other people talk about their own experience. I learned so much from that is starting to see what's mine and what's not mine. The serenity prayer, that first thing, the the first bit of Al-Anon that I heard when I came to a meeting was probably the serenity prayer after the opening or no, that meeting actually starts with the serenity prayer. Let's have a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer and that formula, except the things I cannot change, change the things I can and figure out what the difference is. I talked about that with Esther last week, the wisdom to know the difference. Part of that is knowing when something is my responsibility and when it is absolutely not my responsibility. And that helps me not feel blamed, helps me not feel like it's my fault. Is that something that has worked for you too, Eric? Absolutely. And that last episode, I've got to tell you, was really good. Listened to it a couple days ago. I, I was blamed for everything. My alcoholic's primary tool, weapon, whatever, was to blame me. And I'm talking about everything. I was the weather. I was blamed for the weather. <laughs> and she, had, she absolutely had a way to do it. Uh, I was blamed for traffic. You said, how is that possible? And, and, and at, at some point I said, okay, maybe I am responsible for the weather. Maybe I am responsible for the traffic jam. The way she did it was so cunning and baffling. If we were getting on the highway to drive to Vermont with our daughters, and I would say, hey, great, look at this, no traffic at all. Inevitably, we're going to hit some traffic. And she would say, you had to say that. You had to say there was no traffic. And she was dead serious, Spencer. 
she blamed me for the traffic by bringing it up. Same with yeah. the weather. Look how beautiful a day. Hey, let's have a picnic. It starts to rain. She's like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. You had to water <laughs> the lawn. Now it's raining. <laughs> you, you had to say that it's a beautiful day, and now it's raining. It's your fault for bringing it up. She was dead serious. <sighs> well, I've been convinced. I said, maybe I am the blame. Maybe I am God. I can create weather, and I can create traffic. <laughs> Fair, I'll take the blame for it. Sorry. So I would just respond with sorry, like an idiot. Yeah. Sorry. How am I apologizing for the weather and the traffic? But it seemed easier than getting into an argument. I would apologize for the weather. As Karen <laughs> said, that stinking thinking. Oh, my God. Ridiculous. It's just completely delusional and distorted to take the blame for something that I have nothing whatsoever to do with. All right. I want to play this voicemail from Pat. Hey, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. Thinking about your topic of self-blame, they said was coming up. Maybe you've already recorded a session on it. Boy, that one's really runs deep in my program as an issue. Perfectionism is uh, a serious problem that I have. Many of my elements slips around perfectionism. And when I'm trying to be perfect, then I'm no longer putting things into their true perspective, which has been an incredible tool for me. I love that in the introduction. But instead... I look at what's going on in my life and I blame myself for all outcomes, blame myself for everything that's going wrong, uh, blame myself for anything that I can't do perfectly as a human being. I forget that to be gentle with myself, but it's kind of was the automatic knee-jerk thing was to blame myself. And early on in Al-Anon, while I was still partnered with my uh, person who's a primary alcoholic in my life, it was really damaging in particular because I was so willing to blame myself for anything that went wrong in the household. It was very easy for my partner to manipulate me and manipulate the situation so that I would blame myself. And that served a couple different purposes. It it basically shifted any responsibility off him and on to me. The other thing is it produced all these feelings of guilt, which gave him the room to continue to behave the way he was because it wasn't his fault. It was always my fault. Those are big things with self-blame. The other thing is that if I am always holding myself responsible for things, if I'm always blaming myself if things don't go right, then that means I have an over-responsibility. And that fell right into the four M's um, of being manipulative, managing other people's lives, trying to be in control of other people's lives. It was a recipe for being outside my hula hoop, not being on my side of the street. So the the fix really was working the program and learning to keep things in their true perspective, and also learning to really recognize what my boundaries are in terms of my own personal responsibility. That took a lot of work with my sponsor. Those Al-Anon conversations were always so important. Uh, I found that conversations with people who were not in Al-Anon didn't have the perspective and the point of view. They weren't able to put things into perspective. 
oftentimes they'd want to protect me or jump to the point of saying, oh, nothing's your fault. And that wasn't actually very helpful either. needed to be able to really look at a situation and say, what of this is mine and what of this is somebody else's? But until I got into the program, I was working off an assumption that everybody else is more important than me. It's from a movie, Brian's song, uh, God's First, Everybody Else's Second, I'm Third. And that didn't do me good service as a person. So I just wanted to share those thoughts around self-blame. Hope that's helpful. And thank you to everyone who contributes on a really regular basis. It's just amazing. And what a wonderful resource. Thank you. Bye-bye. So what does that bring up for you, Eric? Wow. These shares are incredible. I love doing the program with other people's shares. Perspective. She mentions it over and over. Yeah. Um, Again, episode 528 is how we see things. We haven't done 500 episodes. I think oh. it's 328. No, 258. There we are. I, I actually looked it up while I was listening. 258. How did I get, how did I get 528? Oh, 528, 258, <laughs> a, little, a little dyslexia there and Whoa. right there, yeah. Yeah, 258? Yes. Yeah, I wish I had 500 see, episodes. I'm a dyslexic Al-Anon. I've come to believe in dog. Yeah. Uh, came to believe in dog. I'm a dyslexic Al-Anon. Anyway, fantastic share. Thank you so much. And I picked up a couple other things out of their perfectionism, which we have an episode, uh, oh, perfection, paralysis, procrastination, something like that, 219. And the four M's, episode 84, the four M's, manipulation, managing, mothering, and martyrdom. That comes from, I think, a reading in the book Paths to Recovery on Step 10, maybe, is where that is. I'm not 100%. But yeah, thank you, Pat. You touched on a whole bunch of things that just really rang true with me. So thanks. You want to read Julie's email? Sure. Email from Julie. This video reminded me of a scene from my own life. I was sexually abused as a child and carried that secret for many years. I was so ashamed and thought that this was my fault, that somehow I caused it to happen to me. I really thought that I was going to carry the secret to my grave. Then I started going to therapy at age 29. I had not found Alan yet and shared it with my therapist. I had told only one other person in my life up to that point. After I told her, she looked me in the eye and said, much like Robin Williams in the movie, Julie, it was not your fault. Unlike the movie, I only needed to be told once. In that moment, I felt all the shame that I had carried all those years melt away, and I started crying. I viscerally felt like my heart was a thousand pounds lighter. It was one of the most powerful moments of my life, and that day marked the beginning of true healing. Growing up in an alcoholic home, I used to think everything that happened in my family was my fault. My parents fighting, my mother's unhappiness, my father's anger and violence, my sister's safety, etc. When my alcoholic father got angry, he would say, this is your fault. You made me angry. You made me throw things and hit you to my mother, sister, or me. I believed him as any other child would, his her parent. Soon this distorted sense of responsibility expanded to include everyone and everything in my life. I spent a lot of time before program telling myself, Julie, you should have known this would happen. You should have seen it coming. 
Now there's a mess and it's all your fault. Then I would spend days, weeks, months, or years beating myself up and punishing myself. Now I know I cannot cause another person to say, do, or be something. I'm just not that powerful. I'm also not powerful enough to control outcomes. I read somewhere recently that I'm responsible for my actions, but not the outcome. So for me, an outcome is fault-based, which I cannot control, and my actions and are responsibility-based, which I do have control over. Now, instead of telling myself an outcome of a particular situation was my fault and picking that up that bad, I gently remind myself, quote, gee, I'm not God. I could not have seen that coming. I did the best I could, and I can turn this over to my higher power. Close quote. As everything else in the program, this is a practice, and I don't do it perfectly all the time. My sponsor reminds me it becomes easier with practice, and I don't have to do anything perfectly. What also helps me are this first step, the serenity prayer, and the slogan, let go and let go. There it is. Thanks, Julie. Another episode reference, number 13, shame. Because, yeah, when we feel, when I feel something is my fault, the shame that I felt over the alcoholism in my family for years, I think, kept me from healing, kept me from reaching out for help, because I was ashamed to admit my fault in in this situation, right? Now I know I cannot cause another person to say, do, or be something. That is a powerful statement, Julie. Thank you. And uh, tools here, serenity prayer. Absolutely. Step one, I'm powerless over other people. I like this notion that outcome I cannot control, but my actions I have responsibility for. Yeah, really good. Because it again, it gets to the serenity prayer. It gets to the things, the actually the things that I can do. Because I think part of feeling blamed, feeling at fault comes from all the things that I tried to do that had no effect, that didn't work. And as many people have said, I'm, I must be doing it wrong. I'm, I just need to try something different. I just need to do the right thing, and then everything will be okay. Yeah? What I just wrote down is I can say no. Who would have known? Yeah. Who would know that saying no is such a powerful tool? And saying no to accepting blame. I've heard it said it was in one of the readings. I choose to not take offense. I take offense to that. And if you, cho- if you pause it a little bit mm-hmm. and make a choice, I do. I will not take offense, meaning I'm not going to pick it up. You can't lay that on me. Yes. And the clarity to know, I finally have the clarity to know what is not acceptable behavior. That took years to get that clarity because our thinking had become, my thinking had become distorted. For sure. All right. Susan called. Hi, Spencer. This is Susan calling from San Diego. First, I want to thank you for your podcast. It truly has become a major part of my recovery program. I walk close to an hour each morning and listen to one of the programs. It's like a meditation. I've never spent this much time meditating in the past. I also like to share your podcast with everyone I can. I'm calling about your It's Not My Fault scene from Goodwill Hunting. I've been in Al-Anon a little over four years. 
And it was suggested that I go to Al-Anon by a business counselor that my dad and I had met with almost five years ago now. She said I should go so I could learn that I wasn't crazy. But just uh, some quick background. For 21 years, I worked with my dad in a small industry and ran our company for 13 years. It was always challenging dealing with him, but the last few years had become awful. And and actually now, as time has passed, I can see how really awful those last few years were. Our agreement with the company was that I would run it and make sure he was always taken care of. And when he passed, I would get the company. So at the time, I was playing the long game. But then four and a half years ago, that all changed when he decided to change his trust because, and I quote, he was worried that he would wake up with his throat slit. So now, like goodwill hunting during this time and even after that, my head knew it wasn't my fault, but my soul did not. I always felt that if I had the right idea, said the right thing, invented the ideal product, made the biggest sale, or could find a project that dad could do that would make him happy, it would all be fine. But it never was. Sure, maybe I won some of the battles, but it never occurred to me at the time that the war could never be won, no matter what happened. And even now, the example that I was at war with my dad seems preposterous. My dad loves his military metaphors. So I guess that kind of shows how crazy our relationship was. So now after 21 years, when the divorce between my dad and I had happened, I was absolutely devastated. I didn't know what would become of me. This business was everything. It was who I was. But God had a better idea for me. And because of Al-Anon, I can truly appreciate that. And also now, because of Al-Anon, I'm on a journey. I just started my step seven. I have found steps five and six. And now as I go into seven to be quite a time of contemplation, especially now with COVID, politics are just nutso, with the Black Lives Matters movement, really thinking of things at a deeper level. So just to wrap it up, my dad and I are actually seeing each other again. A miracle happened and my 83-year-old dad wants to focus on a relationship he and I can have today. It's funny, I'd always hoped he'd be like Scrooge who woke up on Christmas morning and realized it wasn't too late for him. So I am just so grateful for that and one day at a time. So thank you, Spencer. And I can't wait to hear a new episode. So have a wonderful day. Bye. Thanks, Susan. My head knew it wasn't my fault, but my soul did not. And I just was like, that is exactly where Will Hunting was in that clip. Robin Williams, I I don't even know his character's name in the movie. It's just, it's Robin Williams. The therapist says, it's not your fault. And Will says, I know. And the therapist says, no, you don't. It's not your fault. I know. And finally, like, it breaks through from his head to his heart. And that's when, you know, he starts sobbing. And that notion, that feeling that my head knew it, but my soul didn't, that it's, that speaks to me very powerfully. That scene, he doesn't break through until Robin Williams doesn't break through to, until he's about six inches away from his face. You know, he, you gotta look at it again because he's 10 feet away when he starts saying it. When he finally is up in his grill, way in his personal space is when it hits him and he breaks down. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I love what she said. I had to learn that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, oh my God. And uh, a couple notes I wrote down. I heard this in a meeting with Bruce years ago. It was the last year of a big meeting, and the guy just said, I don't have to win anything today. And he looked at me. Bruce looked at me. I looked at him. He goes, man, that was worth the price of admission. <laughs> mm. And then I <clears throat> was out on a date a couple of weeks ago uh, with someone who was a family therapist, very educated, Harvard grad, MBA. She did couples therapy, relationship therapy, and um, blended family therapy. And she said, we're talking about what she did for a living. And I, uh, I asked her, "How? what is your success rate? And what do people come in and what are their issues when they come in? She said, very simple. And this is almost 80% true. She says, oh, he says she's crazy. And she says he's a narcissist. Almost all of them. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, my alcoholic said I was a narcissist, and I said she was crazy. It's true. And we got to straighten that stuff out, and that's why I'm here. Yeah, we. I have to straighten this stuff out for myself in my head. I have to learn that I'm not crazy. To learn you're not yeah. crazy, yeah. yeah. That is so true. All right. Politics are just nutso. I love she said that. <laughs> Man, it feels like the whole world is nutso. Oh, absolutely. I think no matter which side you're on, it must feel nutso. Yeah, I'm in the rooms to straighten out nutso in yeah. my head. Yeah. All right. And our last chair from Deborah. Hi, Spencer. You mentioned in the last episode that you and Eric will be doing this topic next and asked for some input. I, too, have experienced self-blame and criticism. There were moments as a single mother with a teenager self-destructing that I would dissolve into tears, believing I was the worst mother on the planet. I certainly have those moments less frequently now that I am in Al-Anon. However, that self-doubt still creeps in on occasion, in particular when I am anxiety-filled and start negatively projecting. Shortly after I listened to episode 336, I was listening to a guided meditation on self-talk. The leader of meditation said, we often say to ourselves, I am anxious, I am worthless, I am failing, etc. We say it as if the emotion is who we are versus what we are feeling. If we change our self-talk to, I feel anxious, I feel angry, I feel worthless, we can then observe the feeling, address the cause, use my Al-Anon tools, and detach the feeling from who we truly are. This made great sense to me. When I am wound up in fear, I can allow the anxiety to consume me. It becomes me. I had never thought about detaching from a feeling before, only detaching from people. This meditation really helped me think differently about how I experience and react to negative self-talk and emotions. They are just feelings. They do not have to rule my life or my behavior. They do not define me. Also, I can have positive thoughts just as easily as I can have negative thoughts. Replacing a criticism or blame with gratitude, faith, prayer, or physical activity can greatly reduce any negative path I may start to travel down. Again, back to the tools of the program. As I have heard in the rooms, joy is an inside job. When those self-deprecating thoughts sneak in, I say to myself, you're a kind, loving, giving human being, mother, sister, and friend. 
You have done the best you could, knowing what you knew at the time. You are a warrior who has survived and is recovering from the chaos and pain of living with the disease of alcoholism in those you love. And that is who I truly am. Thank you for all you do, Deborah C., Florida. Am versus feel. How does that speak to you, Eric? Feelings, episode 169. I'd have to go back and listen to it. Meditation, episode 151. I told you, you left me alone too long. And kindness, episode 211. Kindness to ourselves. I have the right to feel my feelings, and I can treat them gently no matter what they are, even if they are occasionally bad feelings. Yeah. There's a reading... There's several readings, I think, but there's one that I can't remember exactly where it is about detaching from feelings. As Deborah says, that's a really powerful tool to be able to say, I'm feeling this, but this is not me. I'm feeling angry, but I am not angry. That has not defined me because I think I would have defined myself. I know other people defined me before program as an angry person because I was feeling angry a lot of the time, which was a whole bunch of stuffed other feelings squirting out as anger. It was the only way I knew how to relieve that pressure from inside. And yeah, I would have said, I'm angry. I have an anger problem. I have said I was a rageaholic and maybe that's not fair to myself. It's a nice, concise statement of what was happening. But maybe another way to say that would be, I was acting rageful a lot of the time, which shifts it from shame to guilt. There must be an episode somewhere here about shame and guilt. I'm sure. Maybe we talked about it in the shame episode, way back in episode 13. Shame is I am bad, guilt is I did a bad thing. It shifts, it makes it easier to look at it and to let go of that thing that's living rent-free in my head. Yeah, there's. I'm going to skip to quickly. There's so many articles that I sent. We have not enough time to get into oh, them all, but this, <laughs> I, I know they're really good though. This one I just turned to while you were speaking. It's yeah. is your guilt true or false? Is your by guilt someone true named, or false? All right. Yeah, by someone named Darlene Lancer, JDMFT, whatever that title is. We all experience guilt from time to time, but many of us have a hard time letting go of it and find it difficult to forgive ourselves, even though we may readily forgive others. It's important to recognize whether our guilt is true or false. Just because we feel guilty doesn't mean we are. Feelings aren't facts. And even if our guilt is, quote, true, that we've morally transgressed, we're still worthy and capable of forgiveness. Codependents have underlying internalized shame, which fosters a guilty conscience. They're especially hard on themselves and may suffer from frequent bouts of unrelenting false guilt. Mm. Thus, they're always saying, I'm sorry to keep the peace, but don't really mean it. I had I'm sorry tattooed on my forehead. (laughs) I've said many times, I apologize for the weather, the traffic, and someone else's bad behavior. I just said, I'll just try to keep the peace. Sure, I'll take the blame. Yeah. No longer no longer suits me. That's good. I'll put a link to that in the show notes at the recovery.show slash three thirty-nine. 
Carrie shared this reading, I think this might be a good one to close with. The second thing I wanted to share was a reading from Hope for Today, our daily reader. And it's page 106, April 15th. My Al-Anon sponsor once suggested I detach from my problem and attach instead to my higher power. Until I practice step three and turn my will and life over to God's care, detaching was more like constructing a wall of protection from fear of threat of harm. Before I seriously practice meditation and prayer with step 11, asking only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out, detaching was an exercise of futility. Today, detachment is different for me. It's an opportunity to make a choice. I can focus on the problem or I can attach to my higher power and see what is before me with fresh new eyes and thoughts. I am learning to detach from old reactions that interfere with my serenity, old fears that feed into expectations and judgments and the part of me that diverts me from my primary spiritual aim. I am learning to attach to the loving God I found in Al-Anon, the tools and principles of the Al-Anon program, new friends, and a sponsor who shares experience, strength, and hope with me. And the thought for today, my belief and resilience upon a higher power and the Al-Anon program help me to choose to be happy. Today, I choose the serenity that comes from attaching to God. And the quote is, I have made some choices that help allow me to live more sanely. And I love that expression, detach from the problem and attach to the higher power, because that's where my recovery comes from, whether that higher power is speaking to me through people who shared in this episode, people in meetings, the literature, my higher power speaks to me in, in all kinds of ways and helps me to detach from the things that I am feeling at fault for, that I'm feeling is my fault. Yeah. Carrie gave us a song. The other thing I wanted to share was a song. This topic reminded me of a song, and it's called Good Enough, featuring Jesse Smollett from the show Empire. I just... You maybe don't watch the video for it because it's kind of tough, and I think it should have a trigger warning. Some of the lyrics are, I gave you all of me, but it still ain't enough to make you happy. I gave you everything. It still don't measure up. It feels like I walked 5,000 miles and didn't even come close. It feels like I try to make you smile, but you don't even care. No, I'll never be big enough to pay your dues, but I keep trying and you just keep on making me jump through hoops. What do I got to do? I just want you to look at me and see that I can be worth your love. I just want you to look at me and see that I can be good enough, good enough, good enough. Yeah, that really I feel, describes me before Alamon. So I love this topic because or that scene in that movie really did stay with me. And so I love talking about it. And I can't wait to hear the episode when it's all done and hear what you all have to share about it as well. And thank you so much.
In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? This week and the week coming, I think I'm going to be using my recovery tools a lot in the week coming. Uh, right after we finish recording, I'm going to get in the car and drive to New York State to visit my parents and my brother. I've been isolating, quarantining myself for the last two weeks so that I can at least make less the chance that I will bring disease into their house because my concern is that with all three of them being at risk, that if I do bring COVID into that house, I will be missing some relatives in uh, not too long. And I don't want that to happen. And boy, did I put that in a passive voice because I don't even want to think about it. But I need my program tools when I'm there because I don't know how my brother does it. I think he does it one day at a time, one hour at a time. It is really hard seeing my parents being so much not the people that they used to be as dementia consumes their intellect and their personality. I'm not looking forward to that, but I know that I do have the tools to detach from my feeling of wanting things to be the way they were. And hopefully to accept things as they are, to be present with the people who are there, not the people that I want to be there. So we'll see how that goes. You'll hear about it. Certainly, I will talk about it because that's one of the ways I process things, isn't it? Quarantining has been both more of the same and different. It's the small things. I think I remember saying this when my kids went off to college. It wasn't that they weren't there in the house all the time. It, it, it wasn't that they weren't at meals and I didn't have to be getting them up in the morning to get them to school or whatever the things that were going on when they were teenagers. When it really struck me was like when I would go to the grocery store and realize, oh, my daughter's not here. I don't have to buy soy milk. Like it was those little things that hit me that made me feel the absence. And it's the same with the quarantining is it's the little things. It's the, oh, like I wanted to make bread and I don't have yeast. I guess I can't make bread because I'm not going to the store because I'm quarantining. I have to ask my daughter, hey, we ran out of oregano. Can you get us some oregano? And she's like, do you need it right now? Like, no, I don't need it right now, but I would like to have it. And I'm grateful that she does live nearby, that she is willing to add our stuff to her shopping list. That's been helpful. I also miss being social with my neighbors. And I didn't think that was going to happen. I thought, well, I'm still, I'm going to be able to stand like 10 or 15 feet away from them outside and have conversations, but that didn't happen. And I don't know. If that was me, if that was them, but it didn't happen. And, and so those are the, it's the little things that I miss. I, I was so grateful. Like when I would walk out with the dog at 10 o'clock at night and a neighbor would be going by with her dog and the two dogs would be able to meet nose to nose at the ends of two leashes. And that just that little bit of human contact with another person. My wife is here. I have lots of human contact with her, but it's just one person. And somehow I need more than that. That's my personality. I am an extrovert. 
Saturday morning step meeting, we were doing step six. And that became entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I think that's the exact wording. I'm not positive. And over the last week, and maybe this is partly the sort of emotional impact of the quarantining and everything else that's going on in the world. But she has said to me several times, I heard you in that video meeting and it sounded like you were yelling at people. And maybe you want to think about that. And so step six comes at the right time because step six asks me to consider my shortcomings, consider my yelling, if indeed that's what it was. And if she says it was, it probably was. And consider when I'm in step six, when I'm becoming ready to have a defective character changed or removed, I need to spend some time looking at what does it give me? What's the payoff of this defect? Why do I feel like I need to do this? And then I can really start to own it. And then I can go to step seven and and ask for help changing it. So that's where I am on that right now. And uh, yeah, that's a very brief recovery working in my life this week. How about you, Eric? A monumentous week. Monumental, monumentous. Delivered my younger daughter to college last weekend in North Carolina. Left uh, with my older daughter. We flew down Thursday last week, and my ex, their mom, drove my younger down Wednesday, and we met up down there, had actually the first dinner, the four of us together on Thursday night, and went really well. We sat across the table from each other at a little Mexican restaurant in Greensboro, or High Point, and had a lot of laughs. So everything is be completely smooth from there. Uh, no. No. That's my guess. Anyway, <laughs> nah, just a wild guess. So yeah, anyway, a lot of laughter, episode 121, by the way. Laughter in recovery, episode 121, one of my favorites you and I did. Anyway, uh, listen, I had a lot of help up here with friends taking care of Rudy, my dog. He had a wonderful long weekend. Originally, everybody wanted to bring the dog, and I set a boundary. The dog is staying home. I didn't do it that bluntly, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Focus on what was important, which was handing off our beautiful daughter into school. Right. Huge. She's never really been away. So, and Friday night, as sometimes happens, my alcoholic went off the rails hard. And it was a difficult night. A lot of crying. My daughters and they came. Fortunately, we had two separate hotels. So my older went and got my younger and they stayed with me the rest of the weekend. But we recovered. Uh, I call it now in hindsight that would have derailed me for weeks. It now was just a detour. And their mom made amends to each of us on Saturday, and we moved on. And so it was huge. And Monday morning, on my daily early bird meeting, which now is every morning, 7.30 to 8.30 a.m., which has grown from when it was a face-to-face, it was probably 8 to 10 people. Now on the Zoom meetings, it's 50 to 60. Uh, Every morning, we read from the Daily Readers. And so I chose letting go. My topic for Monday morning was letting go, physically, mentally, emotionally. To let go of my daughter, and I did it, I think, gracefully. And she's so far really enjoying it. So that and uh, my, my standard meditation daily and speaking with my sponsor quite often. 
and some hit and miss meetings. I've become busy at work again, so I'm not doing the five, six, seven, eight Zoom meetings a week like I was, but I'm still obviously keeping up on a daily basis with some form of program. So that's about it. Alina left us a couple of shares on the three M's in understanding alcoholism. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode um, 84 on the four M's, manipulating, managing, mothering, and uh, martyrdom. I guess this morning I'm feeling really upset, so I decided to share. Usually when I share, I'm in a good state of mind, but I just really felt like I had to share, especially when the topic was a reflecting of what I'm going through right now. There's a lot of issues going on at work and a lot of changes that are happening. And I've shared before about it. My boss is very passive aggressive a lot of times. And instead of coming directly to me or to certain staff members or other pertinent members of the team, he will go through his managers and rage and rant at them. And then it gets back to us and it's just a big mess. I feel like he's a little bit manipulative and I know that for me, when I think of these four words, for me, I know that it was different as far as me affecting my qualifier and how I treated him and I realized these things. And for me, I know that a lot of these things came because I didn't know what to do. I was helpless, hopeless, and I just was going through some rough times when my qualifier would relapse or when we were disagreeing about something or I feel like they're acting out when they're not getting their way. And so these kind of feelings are coming back because I feel like my boss does the same thing as far as he's not getting his way. And now I'm don't know what to do. And so I'm just trying to do the best I can. It's just really hard. I don't know this topic. It sounds so bad because I know that I can have a bad mindset and do these things, but I don't really, for me, and I'm probably totally wrong, but for me, I feel like I do it out of love, care, and concern, and I'm doing the best that I can. I do catch myself and realize, no, you can't act that way. But when it's someone else doing it to me, I just feel like there's a lot of pain and hate behind it. And it's just really affects me. Today, I plan on having a sit down with him just 15 minutes. I know I can't change his mind. I'm not there to manipulate or manage or do any of those things. I just want to speak my mind and speak my truth. And if things don't go well, I may resign from my position. So there's a lot of hurt involved. I just wanted to share on the topic, but also just let you know where my mind is at. I guess I'm more upset that I let it take my serenity from me because I was doing really good yesterday at work when I heard some of the news and then it seemed like later on I was talking to my qualifier who works for the same company and he was relaying some stuff that my boss had said to him of course and wanting it relayed to me I know that's the most horrible way to communicate 
but I don't have control over that. That's why I plan on just just wanting 15 minutes of his time and just saying what I need to say and leaving it at that. But I'm going to pray about it too. And I've talked to my sponsor and I hope that things work out. I appreciate you guys being there and the podcast. Thank you. I wanted to share on episode 85. That topic was the journey of alcoholism. I think Spencer shared on his experience with it. I was just reading over the caption about understanding that alcoholism and addiction is basically a disease. And I know when I first came into the program, I didn't really even think about it that way. It took a long time for me to understand, but I think that the first things that popped into my head before I even considered it to be a disease was, why are they doing this? They have so much to live for. They should be grateful. They have a family that loves them, a good job, a nice car. I was thinking of all like the materialistic things that go along with trying to make people happy, but I know that when they're hurting and acting out or doing these things, they're lacking like a love from the, for themselves, really. And it has nothing to do with me because I would sit there and think, well, even when I was growing up and my dad was an alcoholic, even then when I, I wasn't in the program at all until recently, let's see how long has it been since I've been in the program. I want to say six years. When I was growing up and I was little, I was thinking if he loved me, he wouldn't drink. If he loved me, he wouldn't do this and that. And I didn't realize that those traits and wanting to be perfect and wanting to people please came from being a child of an alcoholic. And I know that dealing with my qualifiers, I have two, I have my husband and I have my best friend. It was difficult to accept that it was a disease. And I know when I came into Al-Anon and it was explained to me and I did some reading and I talked to my sponsor about it through my friend's relapses. He's not available as far as communicating or on the phone and he's gone for days depending on who he runs into or who he hangs out with it can last longer but usually if it's just himself it's four or five days and it's scary but I know that I'm sharing today he did have a relapse recently and so today he's withdrawing and it's just hard but I know that I'm handling it differently. I feel bad that he relapsed after 21 months clean, but I know that they say relapse is part of recovery. I know it has nothing to do with me, and I kept thinking about the three C's the whole time. I've been reflecting on what triggered him, and I need to stop that obsessive thinking of trying to figure it out and trying to understand something, because that's just the way my mind goes. But I know that I'm not obsessed you know, obsessing too much, even though it's difficult because I haven't been in this feeling or these emotions in a long time. I'm grateful for the program. And I attended a meeting via Zoom on Saturday, which is basically my home group meeting. I don't know. I just felt like I wasn't, not that I wasn't sad or upset or hurt. And I did have a pit in my stomach still, but I wasn't I don't know. I just felt like I could give it over to my higher power and I was a little more able to get my serenity back. Whereas in the past, I would self-isolate, be really hard on myself and 
trying to figure things out. I still was a little bit this time, but it wasn't as bad. I felt like I could catch myself and come out of it. And I was able to use my tools. Whereas in the past, I just wanted to give up. It was hard to grab these tools. And when I would talk to my Al-Anon friends and they would remind me of what I needed to be doing, I just didn't want to do it. But this time it seemed like I just took the reins and I went ahead and knew what I needed to do. So for that, I'm really grateful. I'm just praying that he stays clean and sober. And I know that he's got to feel pretty bad on himself. So there's nothing more for me to do other than keep my boundaries, practice detachment, and practice first things first and take care of myself. Anyways, I appreciated the topic and I enjoyed the podcast very much. Thank you. Have a good day. I was thinking about what's coming up. A lot of topics have been suggested. My preference when I have a topic that somebody suggests is to get at least one other person to do it with me. So if a topic somebody has suggested resonates with you and you would like to share your experience, strength, and hope, your questions, let me know. Send me an email and say, I'd like to co-host on this topic. And we can arrange that. But in any case, I know that I will be doing, and I'm not sure exactly when, I will be doing an episode that includes your thoughts on our episode 337 about activism and recovery. I've been getting emails and voice shares uh, on that topic, some before the episode went up, some after. And I'm going to put together an episode where your voices can really stand alone on this. So I welcome your thoughts, whether it's about that or any other topic. You can join our conversation, leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And Eric, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795. 95. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic. It's not your fault. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. And our website is the recovery.show, which has all the information about the show. Notes for each episode at therecovery.show slash 339 for this one. Links to the books we read from with page numbers and so on. Videos for the music we chose and links to a bunch of other episodes and that blog post that you talked about. Yeah, lots of links. So the next song that we found is Breaking the Habit by Linkin Park. And this may be about a drug habit. I don't know. The chorus here says it for me. I don't know what's worth fighting for or why I have to scream. I don't know why I instigate and say what I don't mean. I don't know how I got this way. I know it's not all right. So I'm breaking the habit. I'm breaking the habit tonight. And I think Elnon helped me break the habit of feeling like everything's my fault. Yeah, this one is really good. Lincoln Park does some really poignant stuff. I don't want to be the one that battles always choose, because inside I realize that I'm the one confused. Amazing.
I'm still catching up on the emails that came in July when I didn't have really enough energy to process your feedback, to process your shares. So here we are. Allison writes, I'm pretty new to Al-Anon, and your show is a perfect introduction and has been providing me with a great overview and the confidence to join meetings. I'm currently visiting my local area Zoom meetings in search of a good fit and a sponsor. After listening to episode 329 and hearing Amanda describe her idea of a higher power and how she related it to nature and the way birds take flight from her balcony, I find myself thinking about that image to help me navigate the steps and especially the notion of higher power. Thank you for your amazing work and dedication, Allison. Thank you, Allison. I'm happy to hear that the introduction you got to the Al-Anon program from the podcast gave you the confidence to join meetings. Because as I've said many times, I feel that the real work of the program happens face-to-face, or I suppose these days screen-to-screen. Hi, Spencer and Al-Anon fam. My name is Amanda, writing from California. I'm finally writing in because I'm too nervous to call. I want to first say thank you to Spencer and everyone who takes the time to guest host and share their experiences. This podcast is what is getting me through the day lately. I started Al-Anon back in 2018. I, like most of us, was terrified. I was newly married and going to marriage counseling. Our marriage counselor suggested AA for my husband and Al-Anon for me. After that counseling session, my husband made it clear to me that he, quotes, would not be going to AA because he doesn't have a problem, end quotes. Part of me knew that he wouldn't go, considering he has gotten two DUIs and refused to go even when it was court-ordered. I was holding on to any hope that something would fix him, so I went to Al-Anon. My first experience in Al-Anon was great. The three older women in the meeting who were sitting around the tables just chatting and laughing when I walked in were warm and welcoming. It made it easy to go back, especially since it was usually the same three ladies every Tuesday night. It didn't take me long to realize that this program is to help me, not the alcoholics in my life. The three C's and the serenity prayer were my go-to. I loved reading the daily readers and listening to this podcast. Slowly, every Tuesday night turned into every other Tuesday night. My grandma lost her battle to lung cancer later that year. Shortly after that, I found myself not going to Al-Anon, reading, or listening at all. By this time, it's 2019, and despite the doctors telling me I wouldn't be able to conceive, I found out I was four months pregnant. It wasn't an easy pregnancy living with a progressively drinking husband, working full-time, and trying to maintain the house and pay bills. I always thought about Al-Anon and how much better it made me feel. I just couldn't bring myself to go to a meeting while being pregnant. I was mad at myself for giving my innocent child an alcoholic father like my mom had given me. I was embarrassed of what people might think when I walked into a meeting pregnant and talking about my alcoholic husband. Today, I have a beautiful son who will be a year at the end of the month. I am so blessed and thank God every day that I have a healthy child. I do feel guilty for bringing him into this world with a mom who is lost, trying not to be codependent, and a dad who is getting sicker by the day. Meanwhile, I find myself fearing the day he is old enough to take his first sip of alcohol and I become the mother of an alcoholic. Oops! One day at a time! As you can tell by this email, I'm trying to get back into Elanon and work the program the right way this time. Get a sponsor, really focus on the steps, go to meetings, not just my hometown meeting, and really give it my all. With COVID, having to go to online meetings makes me nervous like it's my first meeting all over again. 
I know I will work up the courage eventually, but until then, I will be catching up all the episodes I missed and re-listening to the ones that have been helping me the most. I'm not sure if this is a topic that has been discussed, but I would love to hear if there's anyone out there that left Al-Anon for a while and realized they really needed it, so came back. Is there anyone who is or was pregnant and stayed with their alcoholic husband or partner while feeling like a single parent? If you haven't heard the song July by Noah Cyrus, you should give it a listen. I heard it a million times, but one day I really listened to it and I heard it a lot differently than I had before. I believed it was my higher power telling me to get back into Elanon, and I'm not as alone as I feel. Some lyrics. I've been holding my breath. I've been counting to ten over something you said. I've been holding back tears while you're throwing back beers. I'm alone in my bed. I am afraid of change. Guess that's why we stay the same. Blessings, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing. You asked if there's anyone out there who had left Al-Anon for a while and realized they really needed it, so came back. And we actually have an episode with Karen B. The title is Third Time is the Charm. It's episode 262. So we have that one. I can't recall one with somebody who stayed pregnant with her alcoholic husband, but I wouldn't be surprised if in all the stories out there isn't one. Maybe if you've been in that place. You could share your experience and give some experience, strength, and hope to Amanda here. Annie sent a letter titled, Culture versus Recovery. Hi, Spencer. I hope you are well and thriving. I'm listening to your episode on parenting teenagers with alcoholism and realizing how much of the pain of those years I have forgotten. I realize my shares in my group have been about my son's recovery, not about those terrible years of addiction and using. I have an idea for a program theme for the recovery show. I see that there is a conflict in between the I'm okay, everything's great culture and the honesty and self-examination that the Al-Anon 12-step program requires. How we are raised to be strong and self-sufficient with a stiff upper lip in my case and the searching inventory the fourth step consists of, that is to say the difference between those. My American friends tell me there is a lot of pressure to appear perfect, successful, happy, and affluent when their reality is much different. Many thanks for your show. You touch so many lives. Bless you. Annie in Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah, definitely. I I think I've said that so many times in a meeting, not exactly those words, but the idea that as a male, I am supposed to be able to do anything. I'm supposed to be able to fix anything. That idea was drilled into me by my culture, by my upbringing. And I had to learn differently in this program, for sure. Ginny has thanks and a question. Hi, Spencer. I've listened to many of your podcasts today, and I'm so grateful. Over the past eight years or so, I've attended Al-Anon meetings, yet never felt I got it. I went to large meetings and small meetings, and yet did not get the help I was seeking. I'm fully aware that maybe I was not receptive. However, one thing I did hear you mention was that there's a lot of crying at beginner meetings. I never found that. I experienced people saying, this program saved my life over and over. After listening today, I thought, yes, that is how I feel. Now in COVID, I am not going to attend a meeting locally, but wish I could. I don't know how to use Zoom downloaded on my phone, but the next step is a mystery. Thank you for showing me something new, a new way to think. You mentioned being open to new subjects. I would offer shame as a topic. My daughter is an alcoholic, and 
how I have raised a 35-year-old woman who has broken the law is beyond my ability to comprehend. How could I have failed so much? Lost my husband almost 18 years ago to a rare cancer, and the shame continues. My daughter used that to become an alcoholic. I feel like a failure in so many ways. What is the universe trying to tell me? I don't know. I will continue to listen and want you to know I'm grateful. Ginny. Oh, Ginny, you asked a question about Zoom. So you have Zoom on your phone. You find a listing of Zoom meetings in the web browser on your phone. And they might have a link you can tap on that should open the Zoom app. And I think from there, it says, ask you, do you want to join with video? Do you want to use the audio on your phone or something? I don't know. If you join on a computer, it says, do you want to use the computer audio? And then you should be there in the meeting. Different meetings have different etiquette. I know that one of the things that's important to learn how to do is to mute. So again, if you're on a smartphone, you have the Zoom app. When you tap on the screen, there should be a little microphone icon that appears in the lower left corner. And if you tap on that, you can mute yourself. At least that's how it works on the iPhone. If the meeting listing doesn't have a link but has a number and maybe a password, it's a little more tricky. You start the Zoom app. Actually, let me do this on my phone. So you start the Zoom app, and there should be a Join button. So you tap the Join button. You type in the meeting ID, which is a number. Then you tap Join, and then if the meeting has a password, it will ask you for the password. And if you're all on your phone, this typically requires some switching back and forth because you don't remember the number. You have to go over and get the number and type it in, and then you don't remember the password, so you have to go over and get the password and type it in. So that's kind of a nuisance. It's much easier if the meeting listing has a link you can just tap on. So that's my really short how to use Zoom to get into a meeting. Hopefully it helps. Maybe it gets you a little further. We did have an episode about shame. Episode 13 is about shame. That was an early one. Obviously, we felt that was an important topic. I know that shame is mentioned in many other episodes. They're including this one. If you go to the website at therecovery.show, tap on the search button in the menu at the top of the page. There might be one of those little three-line things you have to tap on to get the menu if you're on a phone or something. And that will take you to a place where you can type shame into the search box and uh, find some episodes that mention it. So I hope that helps, Jenny. A voicemail from Angela. Hi, my name is Angela, and I'm from Al-Anon. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the recovery show. I found out about it about six months ago from Eric. He gave me some outreach when we were on a uh, meeting. And I started listening, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Recently, my sponsor told me that I had to watch 336. That was with you and Eric. I can't even think of the name, what it was, becoming upset without even knowing it or something like that. Anyway, I, I watched it three times, and I took notes on it, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought that you guys did a great job. Keep on going because I think they're saving my life. I really need them a lot, and I hope you keep going, and I appreciate everything that 
Spencer and you and Eric and all the beautiful guests you have. So thank you and have a good day. Thank you, Angela. The episode 336 was titled Irritable and Unreasonable, which we took from the part of the Elanon opening preamble that says we became irritable and unreasonable without knowing it by trying to force solutions. We get a couple of emails of thanks. Monica writes, I've been meaning to write for a while. I really want to thank you for all the work you and the other hosts put into the recovery show. Your show is the first introduction into Al-Anon, and it gave me the courage to attend a meeting in person. I have been going for about seven months now, and my life has been slowly, steadily getting better. I listen to your podcast all the time, and it is invaluable to my recovery. When times are difficult at home, I am reminded by listening to your show that I am not alone, that there are so many others in similar situations, and it gives me hope. I really can't thank you enough, Monica. Thank you, Monica. Dana writes, I'm very new to an Anon group for partners of addicts, not Al-Anon, and my reluctance to say which one it is shows how far I have to go. Just beginning to work the steps, looking for support and inspiration. I discovered your podcast by internet search and have been listening to your episodes during my morning walks. They're really helping me as I start out on a very long journey. I was particularly taken by your episode on step four. It had never occurred to me that I could write down good things. Thank you for this podcast. It felt like a gift and a lifeline the moment I first began to listen. Blessings, Dana. And I'm not sure which Step 4 episode she's talking about. We have talked about Step 4 a number of times, but it might be Episode 16, which was our first episode on Step 4. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses you can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly. And thanks again this week to Kristen, Lisa, Joanne, Sandy, Mary, Lawrence, and Julie. And thank you to everybody who has contributed over the years. Your support enabled me to get a new laptop, which is so much of a joy. It makes it so much easier for me to produce the show and edit the show. I've done one so far, but the difference is night and day. And and I'm really grateful that I was able to do that. So thank you. You want to talk about this? uh, No one is to blame by Howard Jones. The last song that we selected for this episode is no one is to blame by Howard Jones. There are many more in the Spotify playlist that I will put on the website at therecovery.show slash 339. It's a really well-known song. I didn't really know how, who Howard Jones is, but when you hear the song, it's very recognizable. You can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushion, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. You can feel the punishment, but you can't commit the sin. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, This all of it's good. And you want her, and she wants you. We want everyone. And you want her, and she wants you. No one, no one, no one ever is to blame. Really good stuff. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. 
May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.